what is considered to be the most expensive criminal trial and longest criminal trial in the history of the state of Ohio was the 2022 trial of George Wagner IV in connection with what has been called the Pike County Massacre. The killings of that massacre took place in 2016, stemming from a custody battle between George's younger brother, Jake, and Jake's former girlfriend over their daughter, who was born out of wedlock. In all, eight people were killed. Jake and his mother pleaded guilty to charges against them as part of a plea deal to testify against Jake's older brother, George, and Jake's father, who was also named George. Jake's brother was found guilty on eight charges last year, late in the year, and his father is awaiting trial. Now, we hear about such things, and we are rightly horrified. We rightly feel a sense of revulsion at the wickedness was committed as how one members, uh, how members of one family can come upon unsuspecting people in the middle of the night, murder them, many of them in their sleep, and take away their lives. And we ought to feel that sense of revulsion and righteous indignation in this case. And we also ought to feel the same thing as we look at the murderous deeds which were committed here in our text this morning in Genesis chapter 34. So I'd invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me to to Genesis 34 as we continue in the book of Genesis this morning. Moses writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says this, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift And I will give according as you say to me, but give me the girl in marriage. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit, because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. They said to them, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you, if you will become like us, in that every male of you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become one people. 
But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Now their words seemed reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. The young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected than all the household of his father. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are friendly with us. Therefore, let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to live with us to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will live with us. All who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword, came upon the city unawares, and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain, looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the field, excuse me, and that which was in the city and that which was in the field, and they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You've brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And my men, being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister as a harlot? Now as we've been working through the last uh, several chapters of Genesis, we've seen some spiritual growth in Jacob. We saw him early on, of course, as a supplanter of his brother and as a deceiver of his father. But when God came to him at Bethel and confirmed God's promise to him, the Abrahamic promise, we began to see some fruit in his life. We saw how he responded to the, the promise of God at Bethel. He later depended on the Lord as he approached that dreaded meeting with Esau. He wrestled with God for the blessing. He prevailed. God answered his prayer in that the meeting with Esau turned out to be fine, actually. And he gave glory to the Lord in the presence of Esau for how God had graciously blessed him. We saw that last week in chapter 33. But despite these advances in the character of Jacob, Genesis 34 gives us a window to see that all was not well within the family of Jacob. Genesis 34, in short, gives us a window into the depravity of the human heart. Now, first we want to we walk through the chapter and understand what's going on here, and then uh, following that we'll, we'll come around and we'll try to draw out some, some applicational lessons for us. The trouble here begins as Dinah goes out to visit the daughters of the land in verse 1. Now, the details of this desire on the part of Dinah to see the daughters of the land or the precise manner in which it was conducted are not given to us. We don't know if she ventured forth from a curiosity uh, or from a desire to see and imitate also the daughters of the Canaanites. We don't know. But I think it perhaps is worthwhile raising the question just at the outset whether this was a good idea for her to do what she did. As one writer 
pointed out, for a girl of marriageable age to leave a rural encampment and go unchaperoned into an alien city was not a wise thing to do. Now, please understand, I'm not trying to blame the woman at all for what happened here. I'm not saying that she necessarily explicitly did anything sinful. Shechem bears the full weight of responsibility for what he did. But I do think that we ought to at least consider that maybe doing what she did was not wise. Different cultures function differently in terms of what is considered reasonable and what is considered safe. And it may well be that given her time and place, she strayed beyond what was a reasonable boundary when she went out to visit the daughters of the land, apparently unchaperoned. We never want to blame the innocent. Please hear me loud and clear on that. We never want to blame the innocent who are harmed and sinned against. But we also want to be clear that we don't want to set the innocent up to be harmed. We want to protect the innocent. Protection sometimes means boundaries, chaperones, things of that nature. The crime is committed here in verse 2. Shechem, the son of Hamor, sees Dinah. He takes her. He lays with her and violates her. In our terms, this is a rape. But in what follows, it is clear, as odd as it may sound, it is clear that he's not, what he does is not simply done to perpetrate a, and gratify a fleeting desire. Verse 3 tells us that there's something going on here in terms of his attraction to her, that he loves her. In some way, we understand he didn't love her as he ought to love. We all get that. But still, this is not a momentary, fleeting, and lustful desire that he has for her. And so we see at the end of verse 3, he speaks tenderly to her, more literally speaks to her heart. He wants to marry her. And so Shechem speaks to his father Hamor, who is the prince of the land, so that a deal might be worked out so that he can obtain Dinah for her as a wife. Hamor goes to Jacob to work out the deal and... As we see the responses of Jacob in verse 5 and the responses of his son in verse 7, we see some, uh, they, the way that they took the news at first. Jacob first hears the news and he keeps his mouth shut. When his brothers hear the news, they come in from the field and they are grieved and angry because Shechem has done this disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing ought not to be done. And it is noteworthy, I think, that if we compare the language that Moses uses here in Genesis 34 with the language that is used by Tamar in 2 Samuel chapter 13 as, he refused the, as she refused the advances of Amnon. Tamar said to Amnon there, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. There's, in other words, this common stream running through these two accounts. The sons of Jacob here in Genesis 34, Moses as he writes this account, as well as Tamar when she remonstrates with Amnon, all understand that this kind of action, the violation of a woman by a man, is a disgraceful thing. It is a senseless thing. It is a foolish thing, a thing that is not to be done in Israel. And let's be clear about that. Immorality of any kind has no place among the people of God, and in particular the type here, this violent type. And so if Paul can say in Ephesians 5.3, immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, then how much more out of bounds is this specific type of immorality and impurity? This action of Shechem was wicked. It's disgraceful and it must be condemned as such. But 
The sin of Shechem does not excuse the sins which were about to be unleashed upon him and upon his father and upon his entire town. The sin of Shechem, of course, was the catalyst for the sad and violent events of the remainder of the chapter, but does not excuse them. The sin of Shechem explains the sins of Simeon and Levi, but does not in the least excuse them. And so then in verses 8 through 12, we see the pitch that Hamor and Shechem make Jacob and his sons so that Shechem might marry Dinah. Hamor invites them to, to intermarry and live in the land, trade, gain property. Shechem, for his part, was willing to pay any kind of bridal price or gift that might be asked of him. And for whatever the reason might be, Jacob takes a back seat in these negotiations. And at least so far as the text reports these events, he allows his sons to do the talking. And they give their answer then in verses 14 through 17. And they answer deceitfully on account of what had been done to their sister. And the deceit, of course, lay in the fact that though they said that Shechem could marry Dinah on condition that every male in the town would be circumcised, they had no intention of giving Dinah in marriage to them at all. They had absolute zero intentions of that coming to fruition. But for Hamor and Shechem's part, they didn't realize there was any deceit, and the deal seemed good enough as far as they were concerned. So verses 18 through 23, they seek to convince the men of their town to go along with the idea. They argue that these men are friendly, and that they will stand to gain economically by intermarrying with the sons of Jacob. Will not their livestock and their property be ours? And you can see the kind of deal makers that Hamor and his son Shechem are. They're, they're trying to work both sides. They, they say to Jacob and his son, stay in the land. You can, you can live here, you can trade here, gain property. And they say to the men of their city, will not all their property be ours? They're, they're trying to, to work the system from both sides as they strike the deal. And... Uh, they were persuasive enough that the men of their city listened. They were circumcised as re- was required by the sons of Jacob. And then, of course, being incapacitated in their pain, Simeon and Levi, full brothers of Dinah, and that they're both sons of Jacob and uh, sons of Leah, and same for, uh, same for Dinah, in that Jacob was her father, Leah was her mother. And so these full brothers of Dinah fall upon the city. They kill not only Shechem, his father Hamor, they kill every male in the city. And we see in verse 26 that they take Dinah with them, which apparently indicates that she must have remained in the house of Shechem from the time of her violation until her brothers rescued her. And then, according to verse 27, the other sons of Jacob join in taking the plunder from the city. They take the flocks, the herds, the donkeys, the wealth, the little ones, the wives of those whom Simeon and Levi had killed. And at the end of it all, Jacob finally speaks. Jacob hasn't said a word this entire chapter, but finally speaks to Simeon and Levi in verse 30. He says, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. Now, Jacob may well have been horrified at the moral evil that had been done. But in his words, as recorded in verse 30, it's much more pragmatic, right? He's just, at this point, at least as expressed, he's concerned about survival. He says, in other words, how is our family going to survive now that you boys have done all of this? All the people of the land are going to gang up on us and annihilate us. We'll be done for. Now, maybe there was more in his heart, and maybe he actually said more than that. But 
insofar as Moses recorded it, this is all that we have, is that his concern was pragmatic. And notice in verse 31 that response of Simeon and Levi. They respond simply with a rhetorical question, and apparently they view it as the trump card in this case. It's almost the, the so what? The, they, they say, should he treat our sister as a harlot? Now, the implied answer, obviously, is no. He should not have. And in, their, and in their minds, that answer of no, he should not have done this, fully justifies their response. In other words, they're saying, you don't mess with our sister if you don't want this kind of thing to happen. If you mess with our sister, we have no qualms about lying to you, about killing you, and killing every man in your town when you're already in pain, and then taking your herds, flocks, goods, wives, and children. Don't mess with our sister if you don't want this kind of thing to happen. This is what we do. So this is our text, Genesis 34. It is a historical narrative of God's word. There is no explicit mention here, though, of God or of his promises in this chapter. Probably the closest that we get is uh, the matter of circumcision. Circumcision, of course, was the sign of the Lord's covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 17. But here, the sign of God's covenant promise is foisted upon others by means of a lie and therefore is used as an accessory to murder. How wicked is that? Just imagine a pastor seeking to baptize someone for the purpose of drowning them. That's the same kind of thing going on here. Maybe not an exact one-to-one correspondence, but more or less it's taking God's covenant sign and using it as an accessory to take someone's life. And while we certainly can appreciate brothers who are invested in the well-being of their sister and in her honor, nevertheless, Scripture is clear that this is not the way to be invested in the honor of your sister or your loved one. This is not the way to defend the honor of a woman. We have the inspired interpretation of this event in Jacob's prophecy concerning his 12 sons, Genesis 49, verses 5 through 7. This is what Jacob says there. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let not my soul enter into their, con- enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob, scatter them in Israel. Certainly we know that the tribe of Levi did not receive a regular allotment of the land as it was divided up by lot in the days of Joshua. They received uh, villages and towns to live in, but no regular allotment for this inherit- for their inheritance. And Moses has spoken about this in Deuteronomy 18.2, um, where we read that they shall have no inheritance among their countrymen. The Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. The Lord gave to them the, the tithes and the sacrifices and so on. And of course, the, the priestly, uh, the priests, the descendants of Aaron, are from the tribe of Levi. And as for Simeon, Their territory is given to them in Joshua 19, verses 1 through 9, but it all lies within the bounds of the territory of Judah. And if you you have one of those those Bibles that has the maps that shows the the allotments of the various tribes, you can see that that Simeon is uh, is all bunched up there within the tribe of Judah. And I haven't done the work myself, but some have said that if you look at the, uh, the towns that are given to Simeon, that they're not all clumped together in Judah, that they're kind of strung out more in the territory of Judah. 
Moreover, we're also told in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verses 39 through 42, how some of the tribe of Simeon eventually pressed down toward Egypt and took some territory there, and how some of the other Simeonites pressed down toward, uh, toward Edom, uh, toward Mount Seir, to take territory there. And at least according to Jewish tradition, many of the tribe of Simeon became scribes and teachers of the law, and in that way were scattered among the nation, teaching and serving as scribes in different, different areas of the nation. So one of the Jewish Targums paraphrased Jacob's words of Genesis 49.7 by saying, I will divide the tribe of Simeon that they may be scribes and teachers of the law in the congregation of Jacob. And so I think we understand pretty clearly that this action of Simeon and Levi in murdering the men of the city was wicked. There is no justification for it. There's no justification for the plundering of the property and the taking of these women and children captive. But, okay, now what? What are we, what are we supposed to glean from this text? Well, I think there are a few, a few lessons for us, and we'll try to work through these bit by bit. First, we must never take revenge. Simeon and Levi here took matters into their own hands and tried to avenge the honor of their sister. This is not their place. They were not magistrates. They did not have the legal authority to punish Shechem for his crime. Under the circumstances, with his father Hamor being the prince of that region, it is unlikely that Shechem would have ever gotten a fair trial, right? If your daddy is the prince of the land, you're probably, probably going to get off without getting the book thrown at you, so to speak. But be that as it may, it was not for them, as private citizens, to take the law into their own hands. It was not for them to seek revenge. And so we read in Romans 12:19, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And we need to keep this in mind when we might be tempted to take revenge against those who have wronged us or tempted to take revenge against those who have wronged those whom we love or any time when we are tempted to take these kinds of matters into our own hands. We need to remember that the Lord has ordained that the civil government is the one who should handle these things. And we all know that sometimes the government gets it right in terms of, of justice. We know that Government doesn't always get it right in terms of justice. That being the case, we need to remember that it's ultimately the Lord himself who is the final judge. Even the best of human authorities are fallible and make errors in judgment and in justice, but the Lord will judge the world in righteousness at the end, and all wrongs will be righted. Another thing we see here is that in the actions of uh, Simeon and Levi, we see an outright disregard for the principle that punishment should befit the crime, even if it were permissible. Let's just grant that even if it were permissible for them to seek to execute judgment on Shechem on account of what he did, the judgment that they rendered was completely inappropriate. The punishment should befit the crime. And this is what we see in the law in Leviticus 24, 17 through 21, where we read, if a man Take the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. The one who takes the life of an animal shall make it good, life for life. If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. 
The one who kills an animal shall make it good, but the one who kills a man shall be put to death. You see the principle there that the punishment should be proportional to the crime. The punishment should be fitting to the crime that was done. There was a death penalty for killing a man. There was no death penalty for killing an animal. There's injury to be inflicted if you injured a man, but no death penalty for injuring the man. The biblical principle of justice is that the punishment should be fit the crime. As wicked as the sin of Shechem was, the punishment inflicted, namely killing Shechem, Hamor, and the whole town, every man of them, was not proportional to the crime. And I think we as Christians need to keep this in mind when we think about matters of justice and as we think about politics and as we think about what constitutes good government and so forth. Real crimes are committed in this world. And the Lord has established civil government as his minister, his servant on earth to bring wrath on those who practice evil. And as we saw from Leviticus, the Lord's principle of justice is that the punishment ought to befit the crime. And inasmuch as we have opportunity to participate in in government through public elections and so on, we need to make sure that we have those pieces in our framework as we are thinking about what candidate we might want to vote for or might not want to vote for and what legal measures we may or may not want to support should any be put forward uh, for public referendum. We need to be thinking biblically about matters of justice, matters of crime and punishment, and so forth. Another thing that we see here is that the wages of sin is death. Shechem's unchecked passions led directly to his death. You can trace it back by cause and effect. Very clear. His unchecked passions also had unintended consequences for those around him. It led to the death of his father and every man in his city. I bet you Shechem wasn't planning on that when he first laid eyes on Dinah. Now, even though in this particular case, the sins of Simeon and Levi did not lead directly to their deaths or to the deaths of their family, Jacob was very much concerned that this easily could be the case. Jacob said, they're going to gang up on us, they're going to wipe us all out. When sin first presents itself to us, it shows itself as wonderful, as lovely, as if to say, you can do this, it will bring you happiness, it will fix your problems, and there will be no consequences. That's how sin likes to present itself to us. But it's a lie. The wages of sin is death. And when Paul said that in Romans 6.23, he didn't mean physical death, which is bad. He meant something much worse. The second death. Eternal judgment under the wrath of God. But sin, and I think perhaps especially sexual sin, presents itself to us in a way such as to make us oblivious to the truth of where this all will lead. It leads to death. And especially in regard to sexual sin, if you read Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, Proverbs 7, you can see that sexual sin leads to death. Those who go to her go down to Sheol. This is bad news. Another thing that we see in this passage is what we might call the the danger of the rhetorical trump card. And what I'm referring to here is the answer that Simeon and Levi gave to their father there in verse 31. Jacob, of course, points out to them the big trouble that they are in and can now expect under these new circumstances since Simeon and Levi have done this murderous act in the city of Shechem and plundered their property. And to justify themselves, they simply ask that rhetorical question, should he treat our sister as a harlot? And the way in which they reply to their father seems to indicate that they believe that this fully absolves them of anything, of doing any wrong in pursuing these men and killing them. 
They seem to think that this puts an end to the discussion, an end to any debate that might be raised about their conduct. The mentality, uh, the mentality of Simeon and Levi simply says, he treated our sister like a harlot, this is what he gets. Plain and simple. End of discussion. This is what I mean by the rhetorical trump card. They just, just throw that out. They throw out the wrongdoing of Shechem against their sister, and then they jump to the conclusion automatically that their actions were justified. And we have to admit, there is some power and some rhetorical advantage in their answer. Simeon and Levi think that we should be incensed at Shechem's conduct. And in that, they are correct. Shechem's actions were horrible. Those actions deserve our indignation and anger. So far, so good. So far, so just. So far, so right. But our anger and indignation over what Shechem did doesn't mean that we can make the leap that they did, that it's right to murder a man, his father, and every man in town because of what Shechem did. To put it more simply, the sin of Shechem did not justify their sinful response. And what we need to understand is that our response to the sins of others must be governed by Scripture. Our response to the sins of others must be governed by Scripture. For people of the book, that should be granted without controversy. As a general rule, when sins are committed against us or against those whom we love, we have no trouble thinking of ways to respond. We say, well, because he or she did this or that, said this or that, therefore I'm going to do this. And because of what they did or said or whatever, I am fully justified in my response. Because they did X, I'm justified in doing Y. Well, you might be. You might be fully justified in doing Y because they did X. I have to look at the book and find out first. We say in our confession of faith as a church that Scripture is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. Our conduct, creeds, and opinions, in other words, are all subject to Scripture. Scripture has to be the driver. Scripture has to be the informer of all of our opinions and of all of our conduct. When we begin venturing afield from Scripture, away from Scripture, and refusing to subject our opinions and our conduct to Scripture, that's when we get in trouble. And the book of Proverbs speaks to this issue. We read twice over in the book. This proverb shows up twice. Proverbs 14, 12, 16, 25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to counsel. Proverbs 16, 2. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. The Lord weighs the motives. Proverbs 21.2 Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. Proverbs 26.12 Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Do you hear that refrain and the accompanying warning over and over in those Proverbs? We're pretty good about planning our courses of action, judging those plans as wise, and then justifying ourselves in all that we think and all that we do. And uh, we've all done this at some time or the other, haven't we? We've all justified ourselves. We've all been wise in our own eyes. We have that rhetorical trump card and we play it. Sometimes we play it in conversation with others to justify ourselves. A lot of times it just gets played up in the mind. They did this. I'm going to do this. 
It's okay. This is why. And you see, this is exactly what Simeon and Levi did. Their actions seemed right. They were right in their own eyes. And their ways surely were clean in their own sight. Surely they thought themselves to be wise and bold and brave in what they did in standing up for little sister. But the Lord weighed their hearts and their motives and found them wanted, wanting. Their way was a way of death. Under the circumstances, it all seemed so clear to them. Surely this was the right thing to do. But it wasn't. This is why we need the book. This is why we need to look at the book and evaluate our opinions, conducts, and creeds by the book. And so many of you know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and we, we read those verses together, but we also read verse 7. And I think that's helpful to take 3, 5, 6, and 7 all together. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. And in verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. When we take all three of those verses together, do you not see how trusting in the Lord with all our heart, how acknowledging the Lord in all our ways, how fearing the Lord and turning away from evil are set in contrast to two things there? One, leaning on our own understanding, and then secondly, um, it's set in contrast to being wise in our own eyes. And those are, those are our two options. We either are wise in our own eyes and lean on our own understanding, or else we trust the Lord, we turn away from evil, we trust in the Lord with all our heart, and do not lean on our own understanding. Those are, those are our two options. Our responses to the sins of others have to be governed by Scripture. Indeed, all of our actions and all of our thinking must be governed by Scripture. But finally, though we do not see it explicitly, here in chapter 34, when we keep these events in mind and see how God subsequently dealt with these men, with their family and their descendants, we see the grace of God. We don't see it explicitly here in the chapter, but it's in the storyline of Scripture. Though Simeon and Levi deserved death on account of what they did, and we could easily imagine that it was not far-fetched, that it would not have been far-fetched if the thing that Jacob feared actually came upon them, yet nevertheless it did not become a reality. We find down below in chapter 35 verse 5 that when they journeyed away from Shechem, God protected them, that there was a great terror upon those cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Where do you think that terror came from? Ultimately, it came from the Lord preserving and protecting the man who had the Abrahamic promises, the, the man who was going to father a nation through which all nations of the earth would be blessed. The Lord was gracious to his covenant people despite their horrific sins. The Lord kept on doing good to them despite the fact that they deserved judgment. Now for those of you who have spent any time researching your genealogy, you may have noticed that learning about your family and your ancestry and distant relatives has its ups and downs. Sometimes we learn about godly and wonderful things in our family's past Sometimes we uncover some skeletons in the closet back there. Keep in mind who our human author is here. This is Moses. What tribe is he from? He's from the tribe of Levi. He's, he's writing not only as a descendant of Jacob broadly, but as a descendant of Levi specifically, recounting his ancestors' sins. Levi was a man who perpetrated this atrocity, and yet the Lord was pleased 
to raise up Moses from the tribe of Levi, Moses ultimately being a deliverer who led his people out of bondage, foreshadowing Christ in that way. Moses had a brother named Aaron, as we know. Aaron is anointed as the high priest, and his descendants formed the priestly line. All of those high priests who would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement are descended from this mass murderer, Levi. The Lord was gracious in this way and allowed the descendants of this man to serve as types of our great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are therefore reminded, as we put Genesis 34 into the overarching line of biblical history, that there is nothing, not even heinous sins of this type that we see in this chapter, that are able to thwart the plans of God to redeem a people for himself. And there is comfort to be found in that, both when others sin against us and when we ourselves are found to be sinners. And the comfort, again, is that nothing can stop God's plan of salvation. The Lord has made a promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, and he's going to bring that promise to fulfillment. He was going to bring his only begotten son into the world in the fullness of time from this nation, that he would be the seed of of Abraham. God the Father was going to send his son as the Messiah to save a people for himself, and nothing was going to be able to stop that plan from being fully accomplished. And that, my friends, is good news. That means that we must recognize here from this chapter the heinous nature of sin and that we must flee to that Messiah, that Savior, Jesus Christ. We must repent of sin and believe in Christ for forgiveness. Even though we may not have sinned in the ways described in this chapter, nevertheless, we all have our sins and we have them in abundance. The wages of sin, again, is death. We must turn aside from all sin and look to Christ and to trust in him for the forgiveness of sins on account of what Christ has accomplished for us by his death on the cross and his resurrection three days later. The good news of the gospel, as Paul put it in 1 Timothy 1, is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He said that he was the chief of those sinners. The good news of the gospel is that Christ came to save sinners of all kinds. So let's look to Christ for forgiveness, for grace, And if you've never before trusted in Christ, come talk to me after the service or talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about the forgiveness and grace that is to be found in our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we recognize in this chapter the, the wickedness of sin, the sinfulness of sin. We pray, Father, that you would grant us true repentance, that we might turn away from all evil, that we might flee to Christ, that we might be made new by your Spirit, strengthened so that we might walk with you in holiness. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.